Hi there, I'm James Herman and you're listening to The Most Effective Advertising Campaign in the World which is the Campaign for the Master of Advertising Effectiveness online program which I teach in partnership with Walk. On the program, you'll gain a next-level understanding of the evidence-based principles of how to make advertising that creates consistently better commercial results. Just like the extraordinary results we're seeing from this campaign you're listening to now, which will become even more extraordinary as it gradually makes the Master of Advertising Effectiveness brand more mentally available to you, and the familiarity you feel with our brand compounds with each execution you're exposed to over the long term until eventually you make a subconscious emotional decision with your system one thinking to sign up for the master of advertising effectiveness at mae.academy that's mae.academy and welcome to the walk podcast my name is amy rogers and i'm the head of content for walk creative here at Walk, we've just returned from Cannes Lions Festival, where the word, or, or probably acronym, I should say, on everyone's lips was AI. Uh, this year, the industry seems really focusing on harnessing the power of AI as it's got the potential to impact marketing at every stage of the funnel, really. So who better to join us today than someone who is doing just that and harnessing the power of AI and applying it to the optimization of creative and media strategies. So I'm joined today by Ian Forrester, who is founder and CEO of David, a research technology business that helps marketers to understand how their creative is capturing attention and evoking emotions to help them plan and to optimize. And I'm also joined today by Lynette Poe, who is Marcom's head at Singtel and based in Singapore. Um, later on in the podcast, Lynette's going to be telling us about Singtel's approach to the use and measurement of emotion uh, in Singtel's advertising and the results of a study that it did with David. So hello to both of you and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amy. Hey, Amy. Perhaps we could start um, with you both introducing yourselves so our listeners find out a little bit about you before we dive into the, the meat of um, the David's approach and the study that you ran together. Um, Lynette, wh- why don't we start with you? Thanks, Amy. Great to be here. Um, I'm a brand marketeer. I've been one for over 20 years. So I started out as an account planner uh, where I learned most of what I know today really about creative effectiveness. And I've now been at Singtel for 10 years. Uh, most of what my team and I uh, spend our time doing is developing all the marketing communications that drive consumers to choose the Singtel brand. Perfect. Um, Ian, over to you. Yeah, hey, Amy, thanks a lot for having us today. Um, So I'm CEO of David. I've been working on David for about five years now, but prior to that, I used to work at Unruly. So I headed up the Insight team at Unruly. We did a bunch of work there around emotions and advertising and how emotions impact creative effectiveness. And essentially, we're taking all that work we did at Unruly to the next level at David. So super excited to talk to you today. Great. Yeah, again, thank you both for being here. Um, so, so we talk a lot uh, in, in marketing about measurement. We certainly did um, in Cannes last week. Um, and we talk about what happened in a campaign and the results, and, and that's how we measure effectiveness. But Ian, your company's focused more about more on the why. So why the creative drove the impact that it did. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and why it's important to know the why, why creative's working? Yeah, of course. So at the moment, there are three factors which are converging to make knowing why so, so, so important. Um, So I'll I'll just walk you through them. So the first is the fact that as an industry, we're using incomplete metrics to measure advertising campaigns. So we're using media data, sales data, brand lift data, um, you know, any combination of the above. And I'm not suggesting for a second we should stop measuring any of these things. They're all important because they're all telling us what impact campaigns are having 
but none of these things are telling us why. And until you understand the why, you're not generating insight. And it's where that insight, when, when you generate that great insight, that's when you create those great strategies. So incomplete metrics is the first one. Of course, the second one is the death of the cookie, which means that we can't target in the way that we used to be able to or measure in the way that we used to be able to. So that makes knowing why even more important because you've got this impact on effectiveness just from that. And the third one is the sea of sameness, um, which has really been driven by the platforms. So like so Facebook recommending to brands that they should create content in a certain way. So the logo needs to be a certain size. It needs to be in the first three seconds and so on and so forth. And that is because a lot of companies are now following this advice. Creative is following a, a playbook and it, essentially it all looks the same. And the problem with that is, unfortunately, sameness is the antithesis of effectiveness. So these three things are converging to make knowing why even more important these days. Okay, great. So on that why bit, how, how does that translate into what you do at David and how the effectiveness process works on your side? Yeah, so when we started David, the first thing we did was understand the effectiveness process because one of the cool things about David is that we didn't have any legacy data or techniques that we had to shoehorn into the business in some way. We, we literally started with a blank piece of paper and a load of experience from my work at Unruly and, and the other team members' work from the various organizations that they've been in. But we had this blank piece of paper and we, we said to ourselves, right, in order to build this system from the ground up, what data should we collect? And the starting point was the creation of this effectiveness process where we did a meta-analysis, both of academia and industry studies on creative effectiveness. So we've got a couple of academics on the team and we're continuously doing academic literature reviews to bring the latest thinking from academia into the business. And of course, we were looking at work from the IPA and the IAB and all the work we did at Unruly over the years at Ehrenberg Bass. And we, bring these, we brought these two sources of information together to understand why content was working or wasn't working. And essentially, we created this process, which is super simple. So I'll walk you through it. In order to be effective in the wild, a piece of content, first of all, needs to capture attention. So attention is the first thing you need to be, you need to be getting. And of course, attention is the major buzzword in the industry right now. Everyone's fixated on attention, and absolutely rightly so, because without attention, you're dead in the water. If, if consumers aren't paying attention to your creative, then you might as well go home. So attention is super, super important, particularly in the first couple of seconds where in the real world, that's where you have, that's the window that you have to capture that attention before someone scrolled away. However, attention is not the be all and end all. It's just the first hurdle that you have to overcome because once you've captured attention, you've got to do something with it. And that something is evoke an intense positive emotional response because it's the emotional response which creates a memory structure. And it's the memory structure which drives the action which ultimately the brand wants. So the problem with a lot of ads these days is that emotionally they're just a little bit average. So you watch an ad and you think, oh yeah, that was okay. But it's like a four or a five out of 10. It's a positive response with a four or a five out of 10. The issue with that is two seconds later, you've forgotten that ad. And so it's not going to change your behavior. But if a brand can elevate that emotional response to an eight or a nine or a 10 out of 10, the viewer remembers the way the ad made them feel. They attach that feeling to the brand. And it's that feeling which causes that person to do something either immediately or at a later date. So that's another important point. This stuff is relevant both for direct response campaigns and for brand building campaigns. 
Right. So it's about the immediate in- impact and also the long term impact as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting because yeah. we talk about, like you say, there's so much out there about attention. But then, as you say, then doing something with that attention is also super important and probably less less spoken about than, than the attention piece itself. Um, but yeah, that, that emotion piece of the puzzle is really important. And, and like you spoke about, there's so much research out there now that shows that one of the biggest levers that you can pull in in optimizing your creative effectiveness is the use of emotion. Um, but again, like you say, the research is also showing that it's less and less used or has been up until recent years when there's been a little bit more of a focus on it. Um, one of them that sticks out in my mind is, is the IPA study that compared um, rational and emotional campaigns in terms of um, a range of different business metrics. And they found that emotional campaigns outperformed those rational campaigns across every single one of those those business metrics. Um, yeah, super interesting. Um, to just to go back to that effectiveness process um, at David, um, we talk about how the memory of of facts decay more more easily versus a, a positive feeling. And so so that's why you focus on applying data to emotion, David. Is is that right, Ian? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Because emotion is the driver of that memory creation. Um, if you think about this from an evolutionary point of view, right? Humans are programmed to remember stuff which feel which makes them feel either really good or really bad because that's what is going to keep you alive when you're, you're living in a cave, right? Like, so if I get if I'm walking along, I get bitten by a snake, let's say, right? I'm going to remember that for the rest of my life and stay very clear of snakes, and that's going to mean that I'm going to be more likely to survive going forward. Equally, if I'm walking along and I find a berry tree and it's stuffed full of raspberries. I'm like, that's amazing. Munch all the raspberries and remember where that tree is so I can go back next time it's in bloom and do the same again. And so this is what we're programmed to memory. Think about your own memory. You don't, you don't remember everything that happens. You remember the, the highlights and the lowlights. And this is kind of forgotten, ironically, in, um, in advertising is that, you know, we're all being bombarded with all this stuff. And like I said earlier, it tends to be at like a four or a five out of 10, right? Like the stuff, the ads which we're being bombarded with, all the content which we're, we're viewing on a daily basis is just kind of a bit average. And so the thing that you will remember for that day is the thing that either makes you feel really good or really bad. That's the thing which your, your brain is saying, this is important. This is what you need to remember. So if a brand, when we're talking about brand advertising in particular, um, I know we're going to touch on negative emotions a little bit later as well because they can be super, super powerful. But ultimately, most brands should be playing in that positive space because it's possible to attach a negative emotion to your brand as well, which in some cases is good, but in a lot of cases isn't. So generally speaking, we advise brands to stick to the the positive, attach that positive emotion to your brand, and then the, the memory which is going to be created will be a positive one, which is likely to lead to the outcome that you're looking for. Yeah, definitely. It, it reminds me of a, a piece of research that Procter and Gamble, Procter and Gamble, quite bravely, I think, audited all of their all of their creative advertising over over the past few years, um, and they looked at it in a with an emotion lens, and they found that, that, like to your point, positive emotions had the best results, but but negative emotions had still had an outsized impact versus indifference. So that it was the, the point of that was that indifference avoid that at all costs. So it sounds like that that's exactly what you're saying through through what you do at David. Yeah, 100%. I mean, indifference is, is wallpaper, it's forgotten. And, and, you know, frankly, it's, you know, there's no point in supporting uh, an ad which doesn't have an impact. Like, you know, it's literally a waste of money. Um, I mean, it's interesting that, that the study that P&G did, um, finding that negative emotions have 
have more of an impact than in different ones. It's, there's a bit of nuance here in that like, you, you think of some of the world's greatest social video ads, right? Like let's, let's think about um, like a girl, right? Always like a girl. Why was that such an amazing campaign? Well, that opens by evoking negative emotions, right? So you, you see how the like a girl moniker is being used in a negative way. And at the start of that piece of work, viewers are annoyed, like they're angry, right? They're angry, they're, they're, they're upset, they're, they're feeling contempt because their eyes have been opened to the fact that this, this label is being used negatively. But then always show throughout the piece what they're doing about this to rectify the situation. So that's kind of an emotional arc in itself. Like people are taking on this journey where they feel bad, but then at the end, always show what they're doing about it. And the, and the, the positive emotion at the end is amplified by the negative emotions that were felt at the start. Right, right? And yeah. that's a very, really cool way that, that's a great way that brands can, can because, because the feeling at the end is what's going to be attached to the brand, right? It's a peak end rule. And so that end is, is, is that's where a lot of the branding often lives as well. You know, so you, you want to be having that intense positive at the end, generally speaking for a commercial brand. That's not to say that negative emotions are not powerful. In fact, they're more powerful than, than positive emotions because we are all as humans programmed to survive. And so the avoidance of the negative is a much more, it's a much more powerful motivator than, than, the, than the draw of the positive. Absolutely. Um, okay, so let's take it back to kind of where we started, which was artificial intelligence and how how you're applying emotion with a you know an artificial intelligence lens. Talk about kind of how you're doing that, how you're measuring emotion um, through the work that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So um, one of the premises of David is that we're layering together different technologies, different. Um, techniques, pieces of, of knowledge from academia. We're bringing all this together because if you, if you do one thing but not another, then you get part of the picture. Let me take a step back, actually. So to build the, the data set, which is required to build our AI, we need two training data sets. We need to understand how people are responding to creative, and we need to understand what is happening within that creative to cause that response. These are the two data sets which we need to gather. In terms of our attention and emotion data, to gather the how are people responding to stuff data set, we're showing content to people and we're understanding how people are responding to that, to that creative. And in terms of emotion specifically, we're using a couple of different techniques. So we're using a combination of facial coding and the David 39. So facial coding obviously has been around for years, filming people's faces as they're watching creative to see what expressions they're making throughout the piece. Um, and what facial coding is really, really good at is pinpointing the moments within a particular piece of content which are working well or not so well emotionally because you can see when people are tending to smile or frown. That's what facial coding is super good at. What it's not so good at is telling us which emotions are being evoked because we're only picking up six expressions, the, the Paul Ekman six universal expressions, which most facial coding companies use as standard, um, which gives us some granularity, but nowhere near enough. There are loads, loads more than the six emotions. So this is why we've developed the David 39, which is our own emotional categorization, which is drawn, has been drawn from the latest studies from academia. So like a big part of what's going on behind the scenes at David is trawling through academia, frankly, and finding the latest studies on emotions where we are I mean, it's just a really, really complex space that's like academics don't necessarily agree on what constitutes an emotion. 
and there's loads of grey area and loads of debate and, and these emotions differ by country and, and so on. So we have to go through this body of work, distill it down into something which is going to be useful for a practitioner. And that's the David 39, essentially. It's a, it's a very granular. It's not so granular that it's not usable. It's granular enough to give us really powerful insight around the why. Um, and so every piece of content which is in the AI training set, we have this really rich understanding of how people are responding to it emotionally. That's the one side of, of the AI. The other side is understanding what's happening within that creative. So we're sending all the assets which are in an algorithm build to various computer vision APIs, which are telling us what is happening within that creative, both visually and orally on a frame-by-frame -frame basis. Once we've done that, once we've done that work, we've got a really deep understanding of what is happening within creative and a really deep understanding of how people are responding to that. Our system is then correlating these two data sets to say what it was about the creative, which evoked a certain emotion. So, you know, to take a super simple example, we'll be finding that puppies are tending to evoke warmth. So then we, when we test an asset that the system has never seen before, the system will say, oh, there's a puppy there. It's likely that that puppy is going to be evoking warmth. So we're coming back to the why. But the output of all this work is to deliver to our clients, to, to guys like Singtel, the why. Because the why is where the insight lives. And the insight is once you get, once you're generating great insight, you can create great strategy. Brilliant. Yeah, it sounds like a kind of a very complicated system, but there's still perfectly there so thank you for that explanation and and brilliant to hear kind of so much data being applied to creativity you know we've as I said we've just been at Cannes talking about creativity all week but the data aspect of it is sometimes kind of overlooked so we've been talking quite a lot about reconnecting data and creativity and media, media and creativity um uh so so yeah this is this is um this is perfect for those kind of conversations sorry just sorry to interrupt but just one th one thing on that which I think is quite important to mention uh because there's a lot of talk about you know will AI replace creativity will it replace creatives yeah um you know obviously the talk of can and um i'm actually about to just just launch an article on this over the next couple of days so um to watch out for that but basically the answer is no um in my view the answer is no and and, it, and it's certainly david's view as a business is that we are not trying to replace creativity right like cr creative a creative person, like what they create is a, is the sum total of all their experiences, right? Um, and so, you know, someone's upbringing and, and, and where they went that, that morning for the walk, for their walk and, you know, wh where they've traveled and all these become like, like each creative person, because that they've had a unique set of experiences, then create unique things. It's that unique confluence of all this stuff, which is creating, which is allowing that person to create. Um, and I mean, AI with the best will in the world, you know, there's talk about deeper inputs to AI now. And of course, you've got ChatGPT like ingesting the, the internet. Um, but, but imagine a system like you, you, you'd need to, like AI would need to be ingesting everything everywhere, like all at the same time to be able to possibly create all the things which humans can create. And it's just simply never going to happen. So the data inputs which are required to, to, to mean that AI can totally supplant humans, they just will never exist. So humans are not going to be re replaced by AI in terms of creativity because they'll always bring something, a unique set of experiences to the table. And this is 
Davis philosophy as well. Like we're not trying to replace creatives. We're we are empowering creators with this data set, which is based on AI and which is learning from this curated data set, which is then empowering creatives to do a better work. It's sowing the seed of inspiration. Yeah, that AI is allowing people to do their jobs or will allow people to do their jobs better rather than replacing their jobs. Yeah, it certainly it was it was definitely uh, on. Uh, it, w- it was definitely on a lot of agendas in in Canva. I think the the feeling that we certainly got was that it um, there was a lot of kind of not really sure how this is going to impact the industry, and in the short term, it's not going to have this dramatic you know impact on jobs and uh, etc. That 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 some people had predicted. So um, so yeah, good to, good to hear your thoughts on that. Anyway. I think we should introduce Lynette to the conversation at this point, because um, I know the study that Singtel and David conducted together uses some of the theory that you're talking about um, around the David 39 and all of the granularity of, of emotions. Um, Lynette, um, how did you come to be working uh, with Ian and with David and, and how did the study come about? Yeah, but probably love to start um by tapping into one of the points that Ian brought up just now, just on the complexity of the data that exists out there today, uh, the complexity of, uh, I suppose, creative effectiveness, which is what we're talking about. The, the, the reality is that there's a huge amount of data that is available out there. And if we think of creativity as simply joining the dots or joining the dots in a different way uh, each time, uh, looking at your storytelling arc from the moment you want to capture attention to the moment that you want to um, really create that moment of emotional resonance, um, the way that you do that and how you, you, you do that really, I think, is where um, tools like David or AI uh, can really to start, really can start playing a role um, for all of us marketeers and advertisers or creatives uh, within the space. Um, but just coming back to David, so we're, we're a telco. Uh, I work for a telco um, and every telco all around the world is really talking about how we become a tech uh, co, right? We don't just want to be a connectivity layer. We want to be much more than that. And what that means is that data-driven strategies and thinking really needs to be at the heart of everything that we do. So we're really um, data-hungry people. Uh, we we tend to measure uh, everything. Um, we like to measure in everything that moves, uh, we like to say. So you can imagine in my space, uh, we're tracking everything from sales channels to website traffic to social media uh, engagement, all the way up the funnel to your brand salience, difference, meaning, um, and the rest of it. But over the last couple of years, we've increasingly paid much more attention to the way that we activate uh emotions in in advertising great and has that focus on emotion developed through your work with david or do you already kind of identified that emotion was was driving impact through your own measurement you know you said you collect loads and loads of data um what was did you identify that first and then then kind of join up with david to to extend the impact that that could have um i think we we always um we always had a view that you know emotional advertising would would resonate um, we always had a view of, you know, how brand affinity is is connected to emotion. Um, however, I think we never quite looked uh, deep in detail to frame by frame, as, as uh, Ian was describing, frame by frame, 
how you know some of the work that we that we do can or some of the tools that we use within our say films uh, could either distract from emotion or create uh, uh, emotion, and I think that was the difference in what we were trying to do when when we when we came across uh, David. So, uh, w- what's the current approach at Singtel to using emotions and and measuring those I- I- in your ads? So, um, I think what I'm going to say might upset some of my um, partners, but <laughs> I feel that most agencies. Uh, and advertisers, okay, it's not just agencies, both agencies and advertisers, they take a spray and pray approach um, to advertising. And what I mean by that is that we're pretty good, I think, at defining the emotional value proposition. But when it comes to actually making the ads, we mainly use our intuition. So we use our experience or we use our gut um, to figure out, you know, the storytelling or the distinctive assets that we should use or the narrative arc um, that we want to have within, say, a film, um, rather than try to use science or data to try and break it down. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm an ex-planner, so I believe in the art and the power of creativity. So it's not really about doing ad testing to tell you whether people like the ad or they don't like the ad. Rather, it's about really, truly understanding the emotional response. Um, and if that re- emotional um, response helps you to gain, uh, like we've been talking about, uh, people's attention, does it help you to, to get that thumb-stopping um, approach uh, or impact? Sorry. Does that help you to get your thumb-stopping impact uh, to the ad that you want? And does it help you to really gain that um, emotional resonance or engagement with your, with your audience? Um, so ultimately, I think you know, using data in this way, it means that you're applying not just expert judgment, um, but really, really thinking about the consumer ROI you're going to have. Right, yeah. So, so rather than just using that intuitive approach you're trying to apply a data layer to so not to replace the gut feeling but to support it is that is that right well in some instances it can um it as we've seen with um with some of ian's uh uh work that he's done for us um it can go against your intuition um so what you might think is true uh might not be true like he gave the examples uh, about the dog, uh, we use a cat uh, in one of our films. Uh, apparently, it was distracting. Um, okay. We were very upset uh, <laughs> to, to hear, hear uh, about about that. But you know, it's really what I find the most interesting about about David's methodology because it it breaks down, um, you know, what people's intuitive res- emotional response is to your ad frame by frame into this 39 um, emotions, it can really look at what's distracting, like in the case of the cat, um, uh, <laughs> and also tell you uh, what, is, what is working. Um, right, okay. And the interesting thing about it, I think, is that it, it focuses a lot more on the techniques um, that you are using within the, the, the film rather than look at the story that you are trying to tell. A lot of the research that, that we do traditionally in, um, to try and understand uh, 
how your ad is working is qualitative rather than, than, than quantitative. And when you do that, often you are looking at the scenario or you're looking at the narrative or you're looking at your storytelling rather than looking at executional elements within the, within the, the, the film or the campaign. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, Ian, let's bring you back in here to talk about this work in practice on one of Singtel's campaigns. So um, I know this is the study that we were going to talk about um, now. So this was on Singtel's um, Wi-Fi 6 campaign and you were exploring the emotional reactions of viewers to, to the campaign film. So um, tell us a bit about the study and, and, what, and what you found. Yeah, so this is a super interesting one. So Wi-Fi 6, the original um, campaign launched late last year. Um, And and the premise of the the film was the concept of of a Wi-Fi. So Wi-Fi 6 is a a new router which Singtel are are launching, which allows for uh, several people within a household to be online at the same time. Um, But these people in in the film didn't have Wi-Fi 6, and therefore they were having a Wi-Fi fighting over the Wi-Fi. And that was the whole premise of the film. There was a, like, three, like, I don't know, mid to late 20-somethings. Um, you know, one girl was trying to watch TV, live stream. Uh, like an, another another guy was 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 live streaming. Like he had a, trying to post a live video. Another guy was trying to game. And they, these guys are like kind of dancing around and fighting uh, over this Wi-Fi. And so when the campaign first launched, we tested that creative. And we found that, the premise was really strong. I mean, this concept of the Wi-Fi, people could relate to it, and it was it was evoking positive emotional responses. But the the central part of the film was confusing people because it was there was a lot of fast-paced cuts where the people where they were dancing around each other trying to fight for this Wi-Fi, and it was a, there was about a ten-second segment which was just super super fast-paced, and people were literally just. We were just like, I'm not sure what's going on here. So we made these recommendations and Hogarth then went, went away and, and changed the film. We, we, we fed in throughout the process around potential cuts and, and overlays to explain what was going on. Um, you know, a big part of it was like showing that this person, the reason they were angry was that there that, that was buffering, right? And so having just really simple overlays on, on the screen to say, you know, buffering, it's not to explain what was happening here. It just made it much, much clearer. And so the second version came out and then launched after Christmas. And that confusion was massively reduced. It was down by 80%. And we often find when you reduce confusion, you have a a spike in positive emotions because people aren't sitting there thinking, what the hell's going on? I'm not quite sure what's happening here. They're actually taking on board the positive emotions which you had intended to, to take on board. And so as a result, positive emotions went through the roof as well. It was 230% 230% higher. Um, in addition to that as well, in the NV2, we applied what we call the emotional bullseye audience to the campaign. So this is where we test a piece of creative. We understand who is the subset of the broad target audience that that particular piece of creative is working really well for. So there'll be a broad target audience, let's call it for argument's sake, 18 to 45-year-old males and females, but within that, there's going to be a subset that that particular piece of creative is working really well for. And so that's what an emotional bullseye audience does. It identifies that group. And when we identify that group, we can deliver to them. And when we do that, we see 
big upticks in campaign performance because those are the people who are most likely to watch that creative to the end. They're most likely to pay attention in the first place. They're most likely to watch to the end. They're most likely, as a result of the emotional impact that that content has had on them, to do something as a result of being exposed. And so we did a test working with OMD um, in Singapore on, on the, the post-Christmas burst of the campaign, comparing like standard targeting to the emotional bullseye. And we had like 60% uplifts in view-through rate from the emotional bullseye audience part of the campaign. You know, so we're not talking two or three percent uplifts, like huge, huge uplifts in view-through rate. And all this combined, like, like I mean, Singtel are reporting from the post-Christmas burst versus the, the late 2022 burst, like an 11 times uplift in sales of Wi-Fi 6. So hugely, hugely uh, successful campaign. And you know, Singtel are super happy and so are we. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, that emotional bullseye group, that's that's really interesting that you can kind of identify a really, really specific target group. Lynette, was that was that an audience that you'd already kind of planned to target or is that is that something that David kind of helped you identify as part of the creative process? Yeah, it, it was definitely part of the process. We we um, it, it gave us very uh, surprising, uh, a, a very surprising profile. I would say, um, I think I think one of the one of the the attributes of the profile that we were targeting was pet pet lovers. But then again, the cat didn't do um, that well. I think it was distracting from the from the ending and distracting from our Wi-Fi six uh, router. Yeah, so just I, to comment I think on the it cat. Really... Like, <laughs> the, the cat was good. People liked it. Was it was evoking a positive emotion. But it was almost too good because the cat is a super cute cat. It's like a pug-faced cat. I like it. I'm not sure what kind of cat it is, but a ridiculously cute cat. But it was on screen at the same time as the Wi-Fi 6 router, and people essentially weren't looking at the router, they were looking at the cat. And so, you know, the brand impact was was lessened by the cat. <laughs> that's that's what it was. It was very emotive. I love emotive. cute cat videos, is it? Yeah. Yeah. They're the unofficial um, mascot of the internet, aren't they? But distracting in this case, exactly, um, exactly. But the the sixty percent uplift on on VTR using the the creative bullseye audience, I would say, you know, was the was a key uh, learning for us and a, and a huge challenge that we had been trying to to solve. And I think you know a lot of advertisers um, who do digital video are you know looking to see how they can get. Uh, people to watch, you know, more than three seconds or six seconds of their of their campaigns. Yeah, really interesting, and 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 in a great kind of description of how the storytelling aspect of the creative was really good, but the execution was confusing. Um, and those specific elements that you can that you can optimize. Um, Lynette, you spoke earlier about um measuring everything at Singtel, but also believing in, in the art of creativity. How, how does that synergy work um, at Singtel between kind of the really data-led effectiveness and the creative-led effectiveness? Is, is, there, is there a real synergy between the two or do they sometimes, um, do they sometimes kind of go at war with one another? I think bringing it together is the, is the art and the science. Um, it's really like the left and right brain thinking, isn't it? There's, there's two parts of a whole. Um, and we have to keep making sure that they work hand in hand. Yeah, just to just to explain the concept of of kind of left and right brain thinking for anyone listening that's that's not familiar. Um, there's a body of research within advertising effectiveness that's based on 
on the human brain having having two halves that are structurally uh, very different. And as a result, they pay attention to different things. So the left brain is is prioritizing uh, informational transfer um, within the brain region. And then the right brain has has much greater branching and prioritizes communication um, across regions. So the right brain is often what we what we say is the creative side associated with with um, really creative elements like uh, dialogue, distinctive accents, music with melody, um, human intimacy, those those kind of creative elements that are are proven to bring about um, an emotional response and drive long-term effectiveness. And then the left brain on the other side is is about kind of more literal and factual elements. I'm not saying there's kind of a better side of the brain, but they just do things very differently. So we need um, both for, for optimal creativity. Um, but yeah, Lynette, can you talk a bit more about kind of your uh, approach in terms of the kind of data-led effectiveness approach and then the creative-led effectiveness approach um, within within your team? So data-led effectiveness emphasizes all the quantitative uh, metrics, all the measurable outcomes that we have, website traffic, sales, click-through rates, view-through rates, like we were talking about. Um, it helps us to make good quality data-driven uh, decisions. However, usually in media, we use it to optimize campaigns, allocate budgets. Um, Creative-led effectiveness takes us beyond the data, really into the realm of you know, how impactful is our storytelling, um, how impactful are the creative assets that we're using within the campaign, whether the storytelling really captivates, does it resonate in a way that allows us to get that emotional resonance and, and connection. But any tool like David's that allows us to join the two dots um, together helps us to bridge the conversation between media and creative, data and creative um, is always useful. Yeah, that, that bridging part of the equation is something that we spoke a lot about at Can bringing together media and creative particularly. Uh, and to, to your point about emotion and storytelling, our, our research into the most awarded work um, using our walk rankings data, um, we found that those um, creative strategies, so emotion and storytelling, are, are found in the majority of, of campaigns that are rewarded for both creativity and effectiveness. So not just one or the other, for both. So we have evidence that those strategies really work to, to drive creative effectiveness. Just some time for some takeaways, I think, before we finish up. Um, Ian, can I come to you for kind of what you hope that marketers listening to this um, take away with them? Yeah, sure. I mean, I need to reiterate, you know, the power of emotions in a situation where a lot of marketers are focused on attention now. I'm not suggesting for a second that's a bad thing. In fact, it's critical. Um, but expand your thinking a little bit beyond just attention and, and think about the emotional response of, of your creative because that ultimately it's, what, it's that emotional response which maintains attention and which creates the memory structure which ultimately is going to deliver what you want for, from your campaign. And yeah, think about this, this emotional bullseye. We're talking to a lot of brands about this concept of the emotional bullseye audience. It's, it's like a, media is not planned or bought in that way. We're tending not to think about the creative itself and who to show that creative to when we're running campaigns. And if, even if we're doing DCO, we're doing live testing, you know, we might start with like 10 different options within a, within a campaign. And then in the first week or week and a half, we're, we're checking out each option with the same amount of media support and then we're finding what sticks and we're, we're tweaking, we're tweaking, we're tweaking, we're getting to a, a better answer after a time. And then, you know, that content isn't being tested in a lab, but it's being tested in the real world with real media money 
you know so there's still money tons and tons of money being wasted um by distributing in that way whereas you can use this kind of technique get to the answer get to a much better answer than even you'll get to after a week of dco right at the start of the campaign and optimize right from the word go and that's just a much more efficient way to use your media budget so those would be my takeaways Perfect. Great takeaways. Lynette, is there anything from your side, from kind of the brand perspective on on what you've learned from this work with David or, or any kind of takeaways um, on your side? I think, you know, for me, it's in tapping on what Ian said about reducing, you know, confusion and really getting down and using the data to help you to do it. Um, I, I had the opportunity to work with um, another researcher, uh, who looks at emotion recently, Dr. Sasha Cody from Australia. Um, and he told me, you know, when you take a paycheck from a brand, you can no longer think or feel like a consumer. And I think that's very true. Um, and it's the reason why we we can't just use uh, intuition um, to make some of these uh, expert decisions. Um, and we really should use uh, the data and the tools that are out there to help us. Great. Thank you, Lynette, and thank you to Ian um, for both joining me today. Um, we will be back next time with more on the Walk podcast, so please subscribe if you do not already via your favourite podcast platform. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>